I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part three in the series, Practicing the Way, Naming Your Stage of Apprenticeship. What do we do when we become stuck somewhere along the journey of discipleship? What happens when we arrive at a wall of pain that blocks our way forward? Every disciple of Jesus struggles along the narrow road, but getting stuck doesn't have to become the end of the story. Discipleship to Jesus, which is something we talk about constantly at Van City, is a journey. Sometimes it's an adventure, it's beautiful and daring and excitement abounds. And then somewhere along the way, Jesus will lead you to a shadowy wood where the path is shrouded in darkness. If it hasn't happened to you yet, it will. And with his loving smile, and compassionate eyes, he will gesture to the frightening road and say, this is the way forward. But behind you, behind you, the sky is clear, the road has been easy, or relatively so, the weather has been fair. But Jesus will assure you, be that as it may, the dark road is the way forward. And it's there in that moment, in that series of moments, that so many of us get stuck in our discipleship to Jesus. Open your Bibles when you have them to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. What we're about to read is a story that takes place after all the most noteworthy events of John's biography of Jesus, which is what this book is. At this point, Jesus has already arrived. He's taught. He did amazing things. He healed the sick. He forgave sins. He fed the hungry, all that stuff. He's already been arrested. He's already been executed as an enemy of the state. He's already come back to life after having been dead. And this story, the one we're about to read, is actually the final bit of narrative in John's entire biography of Jesus. And the scene is Jesus on a beach around a fire with some of his closest friends, and together they have breakfast. So let's read John chapter 21, beginning with verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, one of his disciples and closest friends, Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? These, in context, being actually the fish that they're having for breakfast, but more than that, the idea is, do you love me more than this? Do you love me more than a career as a fisherman? Peter was a fisherman by trade prior to following Jesus. After Jesus had died and Peter thought he wasn't coming back, Peter had taken up his old trade and was back to fishing again. So Jesus is asking, listen, are you still in or are you going to do this instead? And Peter responds, keep reading, yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Lambs is a metaphor for those who follow Jesus. Jesus called himself the good shepherd. Those who follow him are the sheep or lambs. Verse 16, again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Now, if you know the story of Jesus, you recall that Peter, under duress, had denied even knowing Jesus three times 
just a few days prior to this story. So the story adds in verse 17, the third time Jesus said to Simon, Simon, son of John, do you love me? In other words, this is a healing moment between Jesus and Simon. This is a restoration moment. But healing and restoration are often very painful. So verse 17 goes on, Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? Peter said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, one more time, feed my sheep. But then he goes on. Please listen to this, verse 18. Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. This is, to me personally, one of the most haunting yet beautiful things Jesus ever says to someone in his ministry, in his lifetime on earth. But before Jesus, or before I explain why I think that, notice this language. First, when you were younger, and then there's a transition, but when you are old. And so this is more about than just chronology. This is about the spiritual journey of a dude called Peter. The New Testament frequently cites this metaphor of age to describe the journey of following Jesus. I think, for example, of Paul's language in 1 Corinthians when he writes, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man or an adult, I put the ways of childhood behind me. One of the many haunting things fixed to Jesus' words to Peter is that John, the author of this story, this biography, included them for you and me. This is about the journey of Peter, and it is, in another way, about your spiritual journey, about mine. And in it, Jesus contrasts a shift in wills on the journey. When you're young in the journey, you went wherever you wanted to go. But when you are older, you will be led. Someone else will decide where you go. Here, Jesus is taking up the same imagery he's just evoked in his talk of sheep and lambs. Jesus is the shepherd. He leads the sheep. They do not lead themselves. They follow. And because that imagery is kind of familiar to any of us who have any experience with church, the story of Jesus, it kind of resonates with sentimentality. It's romantic. It's sweet-sounding. But in practice, it grates because the world around you celebrates the illusion of full autonomous self-governance. To do what you want is the highest aspiration of the human animal. And there are notes of truth in there. You do have agency. You do have autonomy. You can, we believe theologically, do what you want, so to speak. You are not being puppeteered by outside forces. But agency is not the same thing as control. And what I mean is that even with complete libertarian freedom, you are not in control of your life or the world around you. Even with total agency, you can't control your own emotions, for example. You can control what you do about them, but you can't control when they come and how they come and how much. You can't completely master sin. You are not Jesus. You can't get to a utopian society. We were talking in our community on Tuesday as we worked through this, the last practice together 
And my friend Heather said something profound. She mentioned the way we often struggle to get through a great upset in our lives, you know, the tragedy, the trauma, the disaster, and we think to ourselves when we're in the process, if I just get through this, then I'll be done, as if more tragedy isn't coming or more trauma isn't coming eventually. You can't stop trauma. You can't preempt all the disaster in your life. You just can't. Abby, my wife, she likes things to be under control, part of her personality and wiring. So I'm often quoting to her uh, Simon Masrani from Jurassic World, who says to Claire, who is much like Abby, the key to a happy life is to accept that you are never actually in control. Yes, you have freedom, you have responsibilities, the things that you do matter, but you are not in control. So for example, even if you're a great parent, your child might rebel. Even if you eat right and you exercise, you might get cancer. Even if you buy a nice home and you fill it up with nice things, a fire might bring it all down. Think of the opening line of what is arguably the most famous psalm. It says, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Now think of all the grandiose uh, all, all the things that such a grandiose statement implies. The idea is that when God leads me, I lack nothing. When God is in the lead and not me, I lack nothing. That doesn't mean that God will be in control. He's not. If what you mean by control is that God is the ultimate cause or puppeteer or engineer of everything, we don't believe He is. You have a say. Other people have a say. Even the spiritual realm has a say. All kinds of things can and will and have happened to you that God did not control, but He can still be the shepherd. We can situate ourselves beneath the loving lordship of Jesus. So Jesus says to Peter, when you were a kid, you chose where to go. But when you're older, in this spiritual journey, you will be led. And you will be led somewhere you do not want to go. And this to me is chilling. We think Jesus means this on the one hand in a broad paradigmatic sense, meaning maturity in the eyes of Jesus is the willingness to be led where you would rather not go sometimes. And not in a terrifying kicking and screaming kind of way, but in the giving up of our illusions of control and our trust that if Jesus leads, we lack nothing. But Jesus is also hinting at something specific in Peter's future. We know from the early church writings that Peter, like Jesus, was crucified by Rome. But unlike Jesus, Peter was hung head down on the cross at his own request. Jerome, a fourth century priest, wrote, and I quote, At Nero's hands, Peter received the crown of martyrdom, being nailed to the cross with his head towards the ground and his feet raised on high asserting that, listen to this, he was unworthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And I was thinking a lot and reading, you know, the... the um, manuscripts, church history about that, all the different sources that tell us that Peter was crucified. And I imagined Peter in the horror of his own execution as he's about to be hung on the cross to die saying, no, not like Jesus, I am not worthy. 
not, no, please don't hurt me, don't execute me, don't, but instead, don't hang me just like him. I don't deserve the honor of dying the exact same way. The handing over of his life in radical, reverent submission to Jesus. The problem with relinquishing the illusion of control to God, as far as I can tell, is twofold. The first thing is that we don't always know where Jesus is taking us. Uh, It can be confusing. It can be really frustrating, especially if you're the type of person who loves to have a plan and know where it's going. But that's not it. On top of that, Jesus will often take us where we do not want to go and not take us where we want to go. And the more I've been reading writers and thinkers in the spiritual formation tradition ever since we started the practices a few years ago, the more I see that so much of our maturity and discipleship hinges on our willingness to follow Jesus into pain, to follow Jesus into uncertainty, to give up more of ourselves each time, to accept His command, take up your cross and follow me in new ways with each passing season of life. And just when we start to feel like we're getting somewhere, getting out in front of the really tough stuff, He has a new way for us to come and die all over again. But all of this so that we can truly be free. In the worldview of Jesus, after death, there's always life if we're willing to be led there. Now, all of this has to do with our current series about practice, uh, the practice of naming your stage of apprenticeship. If you've not been here, we've been talking about the journey of discipleship, something called stage theory. Now, stage theory is an effort to give kind of mapping language to the journey every disciple of Jesus shares. The authors of the New Testament do this when they compare discipleship to infants, then adolescents, then adults. There's kind of a chronology to it. There's a journey. And this journey, according to the New Testament, has stages. It's not simple and linear. It's complicated. It's filled with like back and forth, and then you have glimpses forward when you're not there yet. But it is a journey, and it does have stages. Early on, we talked about one of the more ancient paradigms for understanding the journey of discipleship. It's called the three ways, if you remember. There's purgation, illumination, and union. You can go back and listen to the podcast if you want to catch up. And that paradigm holds up. It still rings true for most disciples of Jesus. But more recently, some writers and thinkers informed by the tradition of stage theory down through the centuries have begun to parse things out with a bit more nuance and consideration for life in the modern world. Before we get into another take on stage theory tonight, I want to point out that all of this is an attempt to offer useful language and ideas to something that's familiar to everyone who follows Jesus. So in the same way that we use different terms to describe different ways of prayer, like we say, oh, there's listening prayer, and then there's imaginative prayer, there's contemplative prayer, there's intercessory prayer. These ideas are tools that are designed, us to, are designed to help us pray, basically. So the term stage theory isn't in the Bible, neither is the term listening prayer, but the ideas are there. And the whole point is this, discipleship to Jesus is, in theory, going somewhere. You are being changed formed, moving the entirety of your life in the direction of love. And that doesn't happen overnight. If you have some idea as to where you are on the journey of discipleship, where you've been, where you're headed next, then it stands to reason that you're better equipped to thrive in that particular stage of the journey, to embrace all that God intends to do and say in that particular stage of the journey. So one more recent take on, stage, on the stage theory paradigm is something called the critical journey. 
It was developed in the 80s and 90s, as this cover well indicates, if you want to check it out, um, by someone named Janet Hagberg and Rob, Robert Gulick from uh, Fuller Seminary, I believe. They based, it was based on a tremendous amount of study and research laid out in this book of the same name. If you want to check it out, The Critical Journey by Janet Hagberg and Robert Gulick. Um, it's uh, a paradigm that divides the spiritual journey into six stages. And uh, while I typically hate being fitted into a box like this, I, could, I honestly, as I read the book, couldn't help but say like, yep, <laughs> pretty much all of this resonates with my experience almost perfectly. So maybe it'll be the same for you. I don't know. But the idea is that there are six stages. It begins with the recognition of God at the top there, and then you move on to stage two, which is the life of discipleship. There's the productive life the journey inward, then comes a possible impasse between um, stage four and five, which is something called the wall. Then you have the journey outward, and then if you make it through, you finally have the life of love. So let's talk a bit about each of these stages. Are you guys all right? You still with me for a little bit? Great, thank you. Okay, the first stage is something called the recognition of God. It's not unlike the awakening prologue of the three ways, if you remember that teaching. This um, happens when it occurs to one that, hey, it seems like there's someone behind all this. There must be something more, more to life than atoms and chance and animals, more than shopping and Instagram, more than career and family. It seems like there's something more. Now, this could happen when you're four years old and a, the nice adult who's serving in your church classroom, hint, hint, says something, and in your small mind, something just clicks, and, it re and you realize, man, there is something more. It could happen when you're 15 years old and you hear a sermon that stirs your heart. It could happen at age 60 when your grown daughter comes home and explains why she's come to faith in Jesus. So maybe it happens in a moment or during an evening conversation or during a prayer. Maybe it happens slowly over an entire season of your life. Maybe it happens over a course of years or even decades. Maybe it happens through a powerful spiritual encounter with emotions running high, or maybe it happens quite simply while you're reading a book and it just makes a lot of sense and you come to the realization there's something more. Maybe it happens because of something really beautiful in your life like falling in love or the birth of a child, or maybe through something horrible, someone you love dies or gets sick or you make a catastrophic mistake in life and it draws you to awareness of something beyond all this. Point is, it happens all sorts of ways, but it is stage one. Now, you only move from stage one to stage two when and if two things happen. The first is that you accept Jesus' invitation to follow Him as an apprentice, right? The awareness of God is not the same thing as discipleship to Jesus. And two, you commit to carrying out that apprenticeship in the context of community with other apprentices of Jesus, not alone. Then begins stage two, the life of discipleship. Of this stage, the authors write in their book, this stage is best characterized as a time of learning and belonging. In this stage, we learn the most about God as perceived by others we respect and trust. We are apprentices. You are, in other words, a novice at this point. You are a learner. You're not a teacher. You are learning the ways of discipleship amongst community from leaders in your life. When a new disciple is really embracing this stage of the journey, they become voracious readers of the Bible. They study. They listen to podcasts. They show up at church. They pitch in. They participate in community. They look for leaders and mentors. They want to know. They want to grow. And you move on from stage two to stage three when and if three different things happen. The first is that you transition from like a generalist approach to discipleship to a specialist approach, meaning 
you're less operating in the whole like, isn't this what Christians do, blanket statement, and more learning what it means for you to follow Jesus personally, your personality, your wiring, your vocation, your calling, your life. And secondly, to move to the next stage, you must identify your unique gifts and begin to contribute to the community of God. And then finally, you begin to take responsibility for other people in your life. In other words, you begin to share the load of leadership with other people. And then you will move on to stage three, the productive life. The authors describe it this way. They say the productive life is best described as the doing stage. It is the period of time when we most consciously find ourselves working for God. In fact, our faith is characterized as just that, working for God or being in God's service. You become busy. You're raising a family, or you're navigating a vocation, or you're leading in a church, or you're working hard, whatever it might be. There are goals, there's quantifiable things, projects and landmarks. And as such, you live in a kind of oscillation of satisfying cause and effect. You set out to do certain things, and you do them, and the work is often rewarding. And of course, there are risks like pride and idolatry, the threat of making all the productivity your God. They're the ever-present dangers in this stage. Your kids can become your God, your career can become your God, your project that you're working on, or maybe the outside affirmation you get because of those things becomes a God to you. But aside from the dangers and other than getting tired, a lot of people enjoy this stage, in fact, more than any of the other stage of the journey, and they don't choose to move to the next stage at all. Something moves them, and often they fight it. They plateau or they regress back to stage three. But for those who move forward, stage four is the journey inward. It's what it sounds like. Stage four, the inward journey, is aptly described by its title, for it is a deep and very personal inward journey. It almost always comes as an unsettling experience, yet results in healing for those who continue through it. Until now, our journey has, been an external, has had an external dimension to it. Our life of faith was more visible, more outwardly oriented, even though things were certainly happening inside us, but the focus fell more on the outside. At this stage, we face an abrupt change to almost the opposite mode. It's a mode of questioning, exploring, falling apart, doubting, dancing around the real issues, sinking in uncertainty, and indulging in a self-centeredness. We often look hopeless to those around us. Does this sound familiar? <laughs> Have you seen this or felt this personally? On the outside, there may be no signs of trouble whatsoever. Maybe things, things seem better than ever before. Family looks great. Church is thriving. Work is thundering along, whatever it might be. But inside, chaos reigns. And you're just not sure anymore, at least not about everything. And the wounds that we all bear from our parents, our upbringing, our mistakes, they begin to weep. And scars from the past yawn back open, and old questions ache, and a sense of melancholy, often mysterious, hovers overhead. And when you look at yourself, part of you seems false or unfamiliar, and maybe you're not sure who the real you is at this point. So you enter into deeper questions and more challenging work of emotional health and maturity. For many of us, it's therapy or radical life changes or severing old routines. You work to uncover and heal wounds of the past while simultaneously unearthing a new vision for the road ahead. And somewhere in all this, you will likely hit something called the wall. 
And this can happen at the outset of stage four or at the conclusion of it. Put simply, the wall is a pain you can't simply avoid or skip over. It could be an event like a massive failure, a catastrophic mistake, an affair, a divorce. It could be a diagnosis. It could be an old wound from which you can't seem to recover, but it comes up as an impasse. Whatever it is, something creeps into the journey that cannot be erased, ignored, or avoided. Maybe it's been there a while, but the tools you use to avoid it no longer numb the pain. Your work no longer distracts. Instagram no longer numbs, porn no longer suppresses, alcohol only does so much. You can manage it no longer. The wall eclipses the way forward, and the only way is to move through, not around the wall. The authors say it like this, we are ready to learn about freedom, the liberty of living without grasping. In a more profound sense than ever before, we have to let God be God and let God direct our lives. At the same time that we surrender our wills to be healed spiritually, we simultaneously begin to be healed psychologically. The wall experience is the place where the two, psychology and spirituality, converge. Up to this point, listen to this, one can be religious, spiritual, or fruitful and not be healed psychologically or vice versa up until this point. So ask someone you know how they got over an incredible loss or tragedy in their lives. And chances are, if that person is even remotely healthy, they'll answer, you don't. You don't get over it. You learn to get through it. And the only way to move through the wall and onto stage five, stage five is by somehow accepting life for what it is with joy and to relinquish the illusion of control completely. It sounds incredibly difficult because it is, but it's also freedom, a new and incredible well of deep and profound joy for your soul. And then you are ready for stage five. Again, this from the authors of The Critical Journey. Once parts of the deep, excruciating inward journey have been experienced, the natural outcome is to venture outside of one's self-centeredness and back into the active world with a new sense of fulfillment. This outward venture may or may not be different from our previous direction, but our focus is different. Our focus is outward, but from a new grounded center of ourselves. Once again, we've been changed. We've experienced new wholeness. We are aware of our faults and have a fresh desire to be in God's will rather than our own. We, we know we are surrendering to a much wiser, more vital spirit. We sense a looser grip on ourselves and willingness to be conduits for God's work in our lives and others' life. We endure suffering gracefully because our confidence is in God. Stage five is the journey outward. For many people, this is the beginning of a new life trajectory. It could be a new career or new role in life or a new season of family life, or maybe not. Maybe it's just a dramatic shift in motivation and disposition. You've changed. Something about you is really different. What other people think seems to matter less and less and less. And yet, counterintuitively, you care more for other people than ever before. Ego and ambition tend to stir you much less. Instead, you feel compelled by love. 
accomplishment you've learned by now doesn't offer any true or ultimate fulfillment at all. The pressure of vocation as your identity lifts from your life and you're freed up to enjoy your work more than you ever have. You're more calm, more peaceful, more joyful. The journey is so much less about fighting and scrambling upward and more about accepting your story with love and resting. If you've made it this far, chances are you'll make the final transition, which is stage six, the life of love. At this stage, we reflect God's love to others in the world more clearly and consistently than we ever thought possible. We let our light shine in such a way that God is given the credit and the thanks. We are at peace with ourselves, fully conscious of being the person God has created us to be. We have little ambition for being well-known, rich, successful, noteworthy, goal-oriented, or spiritual. We are like vessels into which God pours His Spirit, constantly overflowing. We are Spirit-filled, but in a quiet, unassuming way. I am not to this stage, personally. I can only think of other people that I know in my life who've been there and imagine what it must be like, frankly. So think for a moment with me. Stop and think of the people that you know, usually who are further further along in life older, and who are by nature happy and grateful. Not perfect, but happy and grateful, who are effortlessly kind and generous and relaxed and delighted by small things. People who love well, without qualification, without complaint. Think of the people you know who are all these things, who are wholly unconcerned with someone else's definition of success, who no, who no longer place any value on material things, who actually enjoy things without the looming anxious dread of losing them. Everything is a gift, and they live, and more importantly, love well. And that, after all, is the destination of discipleship, love. So in theory, there's six stages, but remember, it's not as linear as it sounds. You move forward and backward, you stumble, you regress, you rocket forward, and then you plateau, you scale the mountain only to arrive at the wall. It's a journey. It's not from point A to point B in a straight line. It's more like a sprawling open world that you discover and rediscover as you learn and grow and get stronger and wiser and more refined in love. And remember this, the whole idea of discipleship as a journey with stages can apply to your entire life, your entire journey with Jesus, but can, it can also apply to individual aspects of your journey. Part of your life and person might feel as if it's lingering in stage two, while another area of your discipleship feels like it's excelled to stage three or stage four. That's pretty normal. What becomes problematic is getting stuck altogether or moving backward in the journey or getting lost on the journey. And to be clear, all of us get stuck on the journey of discipleship. It happens. All of us spin wheels, we go in circles, even regress, um, what my 90s youth group culture called backsliding. Did you guys have that? Levi, you must have had that, right? (laughs) Not you backsliding, but probably. Hey, (laughs) Aaron, how are you doing at this point? Better? (laughs) Dang. Okay, hang in there. We're going somewhere. So, getting stuck does not have to be the end of the journey. But the tragedy is that for many people it is. 
And there are reasons. People get stuck in stage one, for example, because they never step into community. They live in isolation, so they never grow or mature. Or people bog down in stage two because they can't get past a black and white understanding of the world. They draw uh, camp barriers around themselves, become rigid and self-righteous, us versus them in theology or doctrine or your church denomination, whatever it might be. In uh, the critical journey which, on which this teaching is obviously based, the authors mention two types of people who often get stuck indefinitely, and I thought this was particularly pressing for you and I this evening. The first are what they call the switchers, which again, this is 80s and 90s language, so bear with it, the switchers. Um, Cam and I have this inside joke. It's a, <laughs> I guess it's about to become an outside joke. When someone new approaches us on a Sunday evening and they compliment the church, hey, this was fun, or whatever it might be, and then they say, I'll be back like they're in the Terminator or something, we smile at each other and we say, yeah, we'll never see them again. So <laughs> I don't know why, but if they say those three words, that's it. Um, and it's not just like church shoppers, which is this heinous term that exists for some reason, who switch from community to community to community. Sometimes people who wander into our church community and they tell me something like, man, this church is so much better than our last church. I almost immediately reply, graciously, I hope, like, oh, tr trust me, we will disappoint you. Give us a second. We will disappoint you. Not because I think we suck, but because there, there are people here, right? It's inevitable. We're the, we're the worst people, that is. The idea that you will find a church who has their act entirely together is a fantasy, just so you know. And yes, I know you guys, I know some of you have very thoughtful, mature reasons for why you left one community to join another one at some point in your story. It happens. It's happened to me, often in an entirely healthy way. Don't feel critiqued at all. I know that it happens. But I also know so many people who drift from community to community, from leader to leader, never settling, never investing, operating at a distance, all the fun without the hard work, and until they settle they will not mature. I wish I could tell you there's a workaround. I know this from my own life experience. There, there isn't. I've seen this in my own story. I've seen it in my few years as a pastor, but I've also seen it just working at a church, participating in church. I've heard this in detail from every pastor and, pastor and mentor in my life who is aged 35 to 75. Community is the only way discipleship matures. So the switchers inevitably get stuck. And on a similar note, so do the searchers. Okay, deep breath. Here comes the deep water. If you're drifting uh, off at this point, wake up. Please listen to me. If you're people listening in the future on the podcast, please listen to me. The searchers are those who have, in one season of life or another, had a bad religious or church experience. Almost all of us, even those of us who have had a mostly wonderful experience with church and community growing up, have wounds from our upbringing that need healing. This was me. I grew up a fundamentalist, anti-intellectual, racist, nationalistic, nationalistic Southern Baptist. Deep South, during the satanic panic of the 80s and early 90s, where all of culture was inevitably evil. Um, and sure, there were, believe it or not, even with all that horrible stuff said, there were some good things about my church experience growing up, things that I still remember fondly. But at some point, I decided to take it all apart. But... And please hear this, then I put it back together in a community with other people committed to the truth that Jesus is King. The authors of The Critical Journey talk about a process called the healing of religious wounds, and this is when you seek out leadership 
therapy, community, in order to process and sort through your bad impression of God or church or community, whatever it might be. And deconstruction, I don't have to tell you guys, deconstruction is all the rage right now. Very hip, very marketable. It sells books. It generates podcast subscribers. It sounds oh so intellectual, so enlightened. Never mind the rich history of 2,000 plus years worth of doctors and philosophers, astronomers, scientists, physicists, mathematicians, theologians who followed the historic orthodox way of Jesus. We've moved on at this point. So who needs, you know, like Galileo or C.S. Lewis or Mother Teresa or Martin Luther King Jr. or N.T. Wright when you've got girl wash your face in the liturgists? I mean, sure, some of these historic figures faced down the evils of the world head on, cared for the sick and oppressed and never abandoned their faith, but my church didn't like Harry Potter. How can I survive as a Christian? Sure, some of these historic figures dedicated their lives to studying and learning decades upon decades, lifetimes given to loving God with the mind for the sake of future generations of the church and continued to live under the unapologetic lordship of Jesus. But these guys have a podcast. Who needs PhDs and decades of faithful discipleship when you have Twitter? I was in a class a while back. And one of my professors started picking on one of the famous personalities that I'm obviously picking on now. And he said, man, I just have no idea why anyone takes this person seriously. And someone in the class spoke up and said, how come? And I thought that this professor, being like an old conservative dude, would cite some specific theological thing he disagreed with, or maybe it's because they cuss or something like that. But he said, I don't know why anyone would take this person seriously because they're not part of any church. Isn't it interesting that so many of these enlightened post-evangelicals have so much to say about how church should be when they themselves aren't a part of it? There is a time and a place to deconstruct and think and process if it is a phase, if it is followed by reconstruction and reconstruction within the community of faith who believes Jesus is Lord under leadership with accountability and support and other people speaking into the process. The response to bad church isn't no church. It's working through and healing and restoring the church with those who for all their faults believe that Jesus is Lord. Without the Jesus is Lord part and without the community part, you just start to make crap up. You keep stuff you like, you get rid of stuff you don't like, you start to blend in other faiths and spiritualities, you find a book or a podcast to pat you on the back, and you stay there. Now, all that ranting aside, please don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that we shouldn't be critical thinkers or that we should not challenge ourselves or ask questions or wrestle with doubts. If you know me at all, you know that is not my heart in the least. But what I am saying is to bring all of that into the community of people committed to the kingship of Jesus. And believe me, I am a living case study in someone likely to bail on Jesus. Bad experience with church growing up, really heinous experience, rebellious by nature. I loathe groupthink. Any groupthink, I loathe being told what to do. But like Peter, when Jesus asked me, are you leaving? I could only reply, where would, where would I go? You are the only one who has the truth. 
I think I surprise people sometimes. I've had people say to me, man, you know, I want to follow Jesus, but only if you take out like the sin part or the exclusivity bit, or you mix in a little of this spirituality and Buddhism and Eastern New Age and a little of this book and a little of this podcast. And I've actually told people, look, it sounds like you don't want to follow Jesus. Don't follow Him. Lots of people don't. It's not for everybody. Because what you're proposing is not discipleship. And that's why the searchers get stuck. They never mature and they never move on. Maybe that's you at the moment. It has been me. Maybe it, that's not you, but maybe you are searching. You're, you're looking for something. You don't know what it is. Maybe it's not that you're switching from place to place, but something else has got you stuck. We all get stuck. Listen, you don't have to stay where you are. That's why stage theory can be so helpful, to look at all this and ask yourself, how do I move forward? Where am I stuck? We all get stuck. I feel, frankly, myself stuck in a few ways right now in my journey of discipleship. So I'm looking for and asking about the way forward in my time praying every morning, studying the Scriptures with my community, with therapy and all that stuff. Because this is pressing. There is no guarantee that you move forward in the journey of discipleship. I read this week that one writer theorizes most Americans rarely move beyond stage three. The world around you is not exactly optimized to nurture your journey toward maturity, if you haven't noticed. It is instead set up so as to cocoon you in immaturity, to keep you busy and distracted and staring at a screen. Ronald Rollheiser wrote this, Today, a number of historical circumstances are blindly flowing together and accidentally conspiring to produce a climate within which it is difficult not just to think about God or to pray, but simply to have any interior depth whatsoever. We, for every kind of reason, good and bad, are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. It's not that we have anything against God or depth and spirit. We would like these. <laughs> it's just that we are habitually too preoccupied to have any of these show up on our radar screens. We are more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual, and more interested in the movie theater, the sports stadium, and the shopping mall, and the fantasy life they produce in us than we are in the church. Pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. It isn't that the world around you is down on productivity, for example. Buy things, do things, go places, take pictures of it, make money, advance, watch things, click things, listen to things. But none of this is a vision for what Jesus called life to the fullest. And it actually makes a ton of sense. The journey of discipleship is often painful. The deep water is scary. The shallow water seems quite nice. It's not scary. And there are, listen to me, there are actual corporate entities with a financial interest in keeping you distracted and immature. You don't have to be a sociologist or a conspiracy theorist to see this. And when Jesus comes along to poke and prod and say things like, come with me, I have more for you. No, it won't be easy, but come with me. Isn't it convenient to say, I will after I look at my phone? Or I will when my kids are a little bit older. Or maybe when I'm in a less busy season of life, then I'll come with you. Or we say, sure, Jesus, I'm all about it. And then we sit down, we read our Bible, we show up to church, we pray while he stands by patiently saying, you know I'm asking for something more. I am asking for more. 
And just because you pour your heart and soul into the journey of following Jesus doesn't mean you won't screw up or fall backwards or arrive at the wall. In fact, most of us come up, come up against what these writers call the wall more than once the longer we live. Around year one of Van City, I was out the wall without knowing what to call it. And I was reading from one of my favorite psalms constantly, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. And I was still living and functioning, enjoying many things about life and work and family, but inside I was in profound pain. So if that's you, or when this will be you, my encouragement is to ask for help. I can tell you with honesty, personally, that apart from the faithfulness of Jesus, empowering of the Holy Spirit, the three things most contributive to my surviving the wall were therapy, two mentors who are much older and wiser than me speaking into my life and experience and ministry, all that stuff, and my wife and friends. All not me, by the way, outside help. It came slowly in stages, like many, many conversations with my therapists and mentors, and it came all at once sometimes in breakthrough moments. One in particular, uh, uh, when my wife Abby and a mentor of mine prayed over me and prophesied over me one evening. It was a big healing breakthrough moment. And then I got through all this, and around spring of last year, I hit it again and had to go through it all over again. There's a lot there. I hope to talk about it in detail one day. But the weirdest part is making it through the wall didn't eradicate my problems. Um, I thought it was kind of about fixing certain stuff about me, but it wasn't, not really. Uh, a few weeks ago on our date night, I just uh, Abby and I were talking about how we're doing and where we are, and I just realized that over time there are things about me that are shifting, that are different. Um, we were having tea and, and asking each other, like, how's your week? How are you doing? You know, how's discipleship? All that kind of stuff. And I told Abby, you know, I, I feel like for the first time in my life, I think I like myself. And knowing me more than anyone, Abby just said, that's big. When I was looking up at the wall, I was not yet prepared to believe that the way through didn't have much to do with resolving a conflict or figuring something out in a pragmatic way or even improving something in the traditional sense. For me, it was honestly about a kind of acceptance. And if you asked me then to describe how I expected to feel on the other side, I might have said something like, oh, I bet I'll be joyful and celebratory and redeemed. And sure, all that was true in a way, but more so relaxed, so far from perfect, so far to go in my maturity, but relaxed more at peace with this awful tangle of who I am than ever before, laying things down, letting them fall away without the same panic and desperation as before. In either event, I would not have done that on my own. I needed leadership. I needed pastoral care. I needed friends. I needed family. I needed community. In other words, so that's what, why we go on and on about having this conversation in the context of community. This week, when you get together with your Van City community or some friends, if you're not in one yet, you'll head to practicingtheway.org slash naming. And there's a really simple, simple and helpful exercise to help you kind of take an inventory of your spiritual journey. It's built out of this book. I've already done it. I found it pretty helpful. It's actually a little bit fun. It takes about 10 minutes. Give it a shot. Talk about it. Pray through it together. To end tonight, let me just say this. Jesus is so weird. He's so straight. <laughs> we, uh, uh, some of us that are in therapy, a lot of us, since we're all so messed up, we make jokes about our challenges to try to get our therapist to laugh 
the real laugh, not the, you know, condescending, like, he's, ha, ha, ha. But uh, he was telling me something about this guy's um, his PhD, he's been practicing, um, uh, he's been a practicing therapist for decades, and he's also a devoted disciple of Jesus. And he was telling me, he's like, well, you know, I mean, that's what Jesus does. He leads you into pain so that you can be made mature. And I was like, this guy is so frustrating. And, uh, and I got a real laugh from him. It was great. But he's so weird. He's so frustrating. He's so beautifully surprising all the time. Just when you think you have him figured out, he does something, you're like, oh, I guess you are better than I constantly think you are. And yes, I have said to people, I wasn't joking about that, I have said to people, sounds to me like you don't want to follow Jesus. It isn't for everyone. But to you, I am saying, please, don't give up. In all this journey of discipleship talk, it starts to sound like you're Odysseus or something, or like Link from The Legend of Zelda, like you're just a, a lone figure on an epic quest. But that's not really it, not at all. You are being led. Jesus is out in front. He's with us. Even when he leads where we do not want to go, he goes first. Have you seen the way uh, small children will follow their parents into like dangerous spaces under the presumption of safety, <laughs> often when it's not true? Like a kid, the other day I was climbing a ladder to clean a gutter, and I looked and like my kid is on the step just behind me. I was like, oh God, someone get this kid off the ladder. He just went straight up it. Or like, a, you know, my daughter who's about to turn three just will wander straight into the ocean behind her mom and the waves are like crashing over her head and everything. Um, and their parents have to say, oh, whoa, hey, no, wait, wait, wait. I think this is another reason why Jesus says that we have to become like little children or like sheep so that we do follow him straight up the ladder or that we do follow him into the crashing waves or so that we do follow him through the valley of the shadow of death. And if he leads there, it must be the good way, even when it looks like the bad way. And I want to learn to love Him that much. And I'm working on it. So we guys pray with me and invite God's Spirit to speak over us and our journey together as a family and as individuals. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church give.